Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Forge Act Podcast. On today's show, we have editor of Score Golf Magazine, Mr. Jason Logan. We get to dissect the Score Golf Top 100 and some of the surprise movers, as well as some that didn't get the chance to grace the list. Jason describes to us his start in golf and how he eventually landed in a meeting with Bob Weeks, the editor of Score Golf at the time, and how that transitioned into a long-standing position with the magazine. Jason also touches on what he thinks of the tour and what the potential Bryson era will look like. Tons of great stories and such a fantastic interview that we hope you all enjoy. Cheers. Welcome to the 4Jack Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the 4Jack Podcast brought to you by Jackson Labs. Speaking of the lab, we're back in it today. Uh, really fun interview for everyone today. But before we get to our guests, we'll just say hello to the boys. Tombo, what's kicking? Not too much, bud. Uh, yeah, excited to be here. Another Canadian golf kind of Hall of Famer in a way, right? Like that's what we're going with. Score golf writer, editor, creative. Excited to dive into it today with him. Exactly, exactly. Next up, Man at West Parks. What's kicking? Hey boys. Yeah, no, gonna, gonna be a fun show tonight. We're privileged to have, uh, a, yeah, like Tom said, a golf sort of hall of fame, maybe a legend in the making, have a bone to pick with him. I think about some West coast introductees into his list, but we'll dive into that later. Just, uh, really appreciate his time tonight and looking forward to his take on the Bryson era. So jump into that. Mm, exactly. Speaking of said guest, very special guest today, something, a person we've been wanting to talk to for quite some time. The editor of Score Golf Canada, Mr. Jason Logan. How are you, sir? Doing awesome, guys. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the chat. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Just have to give you a little applause there first. Before the hate starts getting thrown around here. On <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got to warm them up first. Yeah. <laughs> I'm used to it. I'm used to it. Trust me. Oh, Love I imagine it. that. You know, it's funny. We were talking to Bob Weeks about that and... I was trying to dig into him a little bit about the top 100. Like I was, I was saying to him, like I've always been a huge fan of the Score Golf Top 100. But I was like, being a West Coast guy, you want to see like more West Coast golf courses or just Western courses. But you know, like obviously, with the bias of the East being there's more people, there's more golf courses. It is what it is. You're like, okay, well, so be it. And I was kind of getting a bob. I'm like, come on, man. Like, I'm sure that you know why there's an East Coast bias. Like, and you're hating on the West. And he's like, but this is what makes it great is the banter, the conversation. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you skirted around this. <laughs> Weeksy, Weeksy loves to go with the whole uh, conversation angle. I'll, I'll, I'll tell it like it is. I don't mind. Yes, that's what I want to hear. Oh. Yeah, he was like Switzerland on the podcast. Oh, yeah. So it was a little <laughs> yeah, suspect, but you got to be, uh, you got to be delicate, right? So, yeah, yeah. He's in the public eye more than I am. I'll just, I'll just blast away here, boys. Love <laughs> Perfect. it. Perfect. I love it. So, yeah, Score Golf Top 100 2020 did come out this year. Nothing new, really, besides the fact that Cabot now taking number one and probably solidifying their spot there for quite some time, I would imagine. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think there's any surprise uh, that Cabot Cliffs was number one. If there was any surprise, maybe it was just that Cabot Links, mm-hmm. uh, the original course out there, dropped a spot to five. But <clears throat> there's never really any surprises, um, you know, since since 
Cabot came on board with the top 10. I mean, like before I even open up the document, I can pretty much tell you nine of the 10 golf courses. And then sometimes the 10th course just kind of switches back and forth, which this year the devil's paintbrush squeaked into that number 10 spot and Beacon Hall got uh, bumped back to number 11, which I'm told the members and the uh, staff at Beacon Hall is not impressed about. They love hanging their hat on the fact that they're a top 10 course, uh, just not to be this year. But I mean, you know, it's always going to be the Jaspers, Bamp, St. George's, Hamilton, the National, Capilano. And I'll just, let me just say, boys, before we get going, that my two favorite courses in the country are Jasper and Capilano. So I've got both uh, neighborhoods that you're in covered. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on this podcast. I mean, to me, he's, my favorite course, man. Uh, my favorite course ever is Jasper. And I've been asked what my favorite course in the world that I've played is. And I mean, I've played some really good golf courses and I'm not to say that Jasper is better than, you know, a Royal Melbourne or a Kingston Heath or a Bally Bunyan, but I just so love being at Jasper park and Capilano's not far behind. I've only played cap once and that was last spring and I was blown away. And for a while there, I thought it might usurp Jasper as my favorite, but uh, I love the, I love Jasper and, cap number two and actually i probably wouldn't even have a toronto area golf course on my top five if i was being honest oh you're slowly becoming that's my music if that's music but, to our but that's that's not to say i'm not gonna that's not to say i'm not gonna defend our list yeah. later in the show <laughs> touche i was gonna say to be completely honest i haven't played any golf out east so you know you gotta get that too right you gotta you gotta dip around it's, you know play what? a little bit like, of this a little of that yeah in all honesty like it's kind of a similar refrain that I hear and I'll give you a great example. So, and I don't think he'll mind me saying it. Good buddy of mine and a panelist is Alan Carter, who's mm-hmm. director of golf yep. at Edmonton country club. And for God, Used God to be knows, at how many years he was at Jasper. And that's where I first met AC. Uh, it was my second year on the job. I went out to play Banff and Jasper and Stewart Creek courses in the Rockies and you know, got paired with AC, had a great round. You know, we went off for 29 on the front nine. And I think I was the only one in the group that knew he shot 29 because the other guys weren't really, you know, in tune with what was going on. And I could tell that, you know, he had, he had the CR in his mind. I think he ended up shooting 64. He kind of stalled a bit, (laughs) but uh, you know, he and I have become great friends and he came out two years ago back to the Toronto. He, He worked in the Toronto area for a long time and he came and he played a bunch of courses and he brought, uh, I think it was somebody who was on his board of directors at Edmonton country club with him. And they played like St. George's and the national and Maple downs and Hamilton, just a bunch of courses. And we sat and had a beer at St. George's afterwards. And the, the member from Edmonton said, I've never played golf in Toronto. And he goes, I am blown out of the water. He's like, I was the guy who always sat back and said, there's no way that golf courses in and around Toronto can be that much better than those in and around Edmonton, Calgary, wherever. And he said, I am absolutely wrong. He's like, I just cannot believe how much better and uh, more and numerous the great golf courses are around Southern Ontario. And that's just an example. I think I hear a lot of um, people from out West that haven't necessarily traveled to play golf around Toronto. That just, um, that just can't fathom the golf being that good here. Um, but you got to remember that, you know, Toronto back in the days where a lot of the money was, that's why it attracted the top notch architects There's you know, there's a reason why Stanley Thompson designed so many courses around Toronto. There's a reason why Harry Colt designed, you know, Hamilton and Toronto golf club. There's a reason why 
A.W. Tillinghast is only Canadian design is in Toronto. There's a reason why, you know, Willie Park design courses here. Um, even the Fazios when they did the national in the modern day areas, just there's a lot of money here back in the day and it attracted the top architects in the game. And thus you had so many of these great golf courses when the land was available way back in the day. And now we see a hundred years on, you know, these classic golf courses just standing the test of time. But I mean, that being said, though, with the amount of money that was in Toronto at that time, yes. But also because of the fact that that's closer to the States, it's it was it was far closer than anything else. And I mean, Edmonton was kind of just getting developed in the early 1900s mm-hmm. in a sense. So there was no chance for development of golf courses like such. I mean, Highlands here in the city is, you know, 85 years old. Okay, well, that's probably our oldest. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's an old design. But... I, I understand what you're saying with that in the sense that, yeah, that's where the money was going to go and that's where the designs were going to happen. And Stanley Thompson made his mark there. I want to touch on this Stanley Thompson thing really quickly with you before we go deep into things because Parksy and I were just talking about this right before we started recording. There are five, and I, I'm not going to throw any shade because like, I love Stanley Thompson courses as well. And I know those are your two favorites, but there's five. Put your vest tens. on here. There's five top 10 or Stanley Thompson's in the top 10 Jasper yeah. being one and many and Caplano being another. I haven't played cap, so I can't really say I've seen the scenery. It's incredible, but I've played Jasper and I love the golf course. I do. But if you took away the scenery in many of those Stanley Thompson courses, not just Jasper, are the golf courses as good as they rank? Let me ask you this. Can you take the can you take the ocean away from Pebble Beach? No, definitely you not. You can't. You can't. And when you talk about Jasper specifically, yeah. you have to understand that that Stanley Thompson designed Jasper Park with the mountains in mind. Right? He shaped the bunkers to mimic the mountains. He play if you play Jasper and you stand on every tee deck and you look at the green, there is a perfect mountain peak that frames the green in the background. Then you go to the green and you turn around, you look back at the tee deck and there is a perfect mountain peak framing the tee deck. How in the world did he do that in 1925 or whatever it was, you know, and remember long before machinery came to be in the design of golf courses. Um, You know, I, I, you know, I get that a lot. And I think there's a difference between scenery and setting. Mm -hmm. Scenery is what I think of when you can say, okay, this course is overrated and it's just because, you know, it's got some really cool backdrops and, you know, some mountains way off in the distance or like a fuzzy forest in the desert with waterfalls and flowers, waterfalls that they create that environment. Yeah. That's, that's scenery. Okay. That's scenery, which plays a factor in the way some people appreciate and um, interpret a golf course. But setting to me is an entire different story. And a mm-hmm. setting when it's used properly, uh, an architect can do some really great things. I mean, look at Victoria Golf Club. I don't know if you guys have played Victoria Golf Club, but if you ask, you know, even a Jeff Minge, Jeff Minge, who's uh, an Ontario based architect who's been doing all the restoration work at Victoria, he absolutely loves the place. And, you know, you say to him, why is Victoria such a great place? And he said, it starts with the setting. I mean, you got, you're right on the, on the ocean. Sure. Yeah. You know, you got all these different color contrasts and I mean, it's one of the great front nines in the country and you, you can't just take the ocean away from Victoria. You can't just mm-hmm. take the mountains away from Jasper. And even if you did take the mountains away from Jasper, 
you know, I love it so much because I think um, it's the type of course where the 25 handicapper can go and just have a wonderful day and not understand how actually difficult that course can be. Whereas the four or five handicap can go and be like, man, oh man, you know, the par threes here are unbelievable. Probably the best set of par threes in the country. You've got, you know, par threes of varying lengths. You've got, you know, the fourth, which is a 200 yard and the ninth, which, you know, Cleopatra, which plays downhill with Pyramid Mountain in the backdrop. But then you've got something like the 15th Bad Baby, where the first time you play that hole, you're like, oh, this doesn't look like much. Mm-hmm. And if you hit the green, you're like, this isn't that much. But then once you find out what happens if you miss that green, every single time you play that hole afterwards, you're like, oh, my God, I can't. Like I'm so ner- I'm so nervous over this wedge <laughs> shot because yeah. if I miss this green, I'm dead. I'm never getting up and down par, right? And that's the beauty of that hole. So, um, yeah, I'll defend I'll defend Jasper until the day I. Hey, and that's yeah, great yeah. answer. Like these are just opinions, and yeah, I it's it's great. It's great conversation. Back to Bob's point, it's great. It makes for great conversation. Right? Yeah, like I just think, and I mean, maybe we're not at a point yet in within the country that. There are so many new golf courses that seem to be popping up, especially over the last, say, 15 years. And I wonder when those start to creep into that top 20, that top 10 spot and push out those Stanley Thompson designs. Like, will that happen? I don't know. I don't think so. It, I don't think it will. Because how do you get the property in order to do that? Yeah, I mean, obviously Cabot is the exception to that. Um, you know, but I mean, we're talking about, um, we're talking about a true Lynx course in Cabot Lynx. You know, uh, meets every definition of a Lynx course. The only one in Canada really that does so. Yeah, um, Ocean, you know, Oceanside Lynx. Yeah, Oceanside Lynx. You know, between the town and the sea, on the sandy soil, everything that you need for a Lynx course. Uh, and then you talk about you know the cliff top setting of cliffs, and I mean you you get that kind of setting, and then you bring in arguably the hottest and best design team in the world in Coeur Crenshaw. I mean, there's it's just no way they're not going to build something that spectacular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny about Cabot is I know a lot of people, Raiders included, that would tell you that Cabot Lynx is the better golf course and the one that they would probably play more often. And I think I would probably put myself in that group just because it's kind of a more cohesive golf course. It's, you know, kind of flows a little bit better. Cliffs is like, you know, 18 star studded holes. You know, it's like a movie yeah. where, you know, 18 of the, the biggest and brightest names in Hollywood are all collaborating. Whereas Lynx is like this cool course where like, you see some actors that you didn't even really know like about before film. and you're like, wow, who's this guy? Right. And it's, uh, but I mean, it's such a, such a great place and a great property. So that's the exception where that place comes online and obviously takes up two spots in the top 10. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with Mickelson national. I've heard great things about it from those who I've walked the property in 2016 when the women's open was at Pritis. Uh, and I mean, it looks great. Um, and some of those who played it say it's spectacular. Don't know whether that gets into the top 10 or not, but, you know, we'll see. Okay, I like that. I guess my question from this now is that one that was in the top 10 got bumped to 11. Like, yeah, I guess, like, what are they going to have to do in order to get themselves back into the top 10? They Honestly, the, the, the real answer is they don't have to do anything. I mean... I think we get hung up when we look at the top 100 about the rankings. And obviously that's what it's all about. You know, 11 versus 10 is quite a big deal to some clubs. But if you look at the scores associated with the rankings, I mean, it's so close. Yeah, they're we're all talking so about yeah. decimal points. So one guy goes tomorrow and plays Beacon Hall and he's like, wow, this is way better than I thought and rates it X. 
tomorrow, I mean, it could be 10 and the paintbrush could be 11, mm -hmm. right? Or, or a guy goes and plays a paintbrush and he's not really into that kind of style of golf and he marks it accordingly and then the paintbrush is 11, 12 or whatever, right? So it's very, very close. Well, that's a good segue then. Because I, I, we were talking about it with Bob and he was talking about the panel of the guys that go out and, you know, obviously deal with this, the top 100 and obviously you have the final say or the, the biggest part in it. So how many guys are in this panel... How, where are they spread? Like, do you have, obviously you have more out in the East because there's more people, more courses. And, but how does that all come together then when you guys start forming the top 100? Like, how does that scoring work then? Yeah, what's the criteria to become a member of that, of that panel as well? So, yeah, great question. So we have 100 panelists on the nose right now. And we've kind of been steady with that number for a little while, really only because I've, I've clamped down in recent years on guys that I want to add. Um, and kind of when I inherited the top 100 from Bob, which is a number of years ago now, um, you know, he was obviously there when it started and what started, it was, you know, largely just a straw poll, um, among like touring pros and club pros and the way the panel has evolved now, the majority of the people on the panel are just, you know, regular public players or members of private clubs that have a really, really deep interest and understanding of golf course architecture. So I do make people who apply fill in an application. Um, and, and they kind of are vetted by some senior panelists on the list and say like, yeah, this guy is, it should be pretty good for a panel or not. Um, right away. I can tell you that I want people on the panel who are already connected enough in some way, shape or form to be able to access golf courses without being a score golf rater. Like I don't want somebody, and I have this all the time. Somebody comes on and says, I, I think I'd be a great panelist. I love golf and I love golf course architecture. I say, well, how many courses on the top 100 have you played? And they're like 12. Well, so you've never played the national or say sorry, George's or Capilano or Jasper or Bant. I mean, how are you going to be able to judge a golf course if you don't have that reference already? Right. I mean, I need people that are coming on and say like, I don't need, score golf to be able to access these courses. I can do it on my own. And people are smart enough to be able to do that these days, right? Whether they have reciprocals or they're just, you know, aware that you can write a, a letter to a club. And if you show you know your stuff, you're probably going to get invited out and play with a member and pay the guest fee. Mm -hmm. So we have those hundred people. They are spread out across the country. Um, there is more in my neck of the woods than yours. There is locations in the country where we need more representation. Uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Atlanta, Canada, for sure. Um, you know, the problem I have is when I try to find people, I, I run into that situation I just described where the only golf they've really played is kind of within their own region. And you're like, okay, so the guy in Manitoba thinks that St. Charles is the best golf course he's ever seen and ranks at 8.9 out of 10. Well, that's better than Mark and, you know, St. George's and Capilano are getting. So that throws everything off, right? Yeah, it doesn't validate it. It, it just doesn't work. Um, and it's unfortunate the way it is. Um, you know, you find that people from the bigger cities tend to travel more because of their jobs. People from Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, these people tend to travel more um, because of their jobs, because of their incomes. They can afford to do so and, and therefore play more golf. Um, so they all are able to log into our website. They have their own top 100 portal. So they'll go on and they'll rank courses based on the criteria, which is challenge, design, strategy, beauty, uh, part three holes, part four holes, part five holes, conditioning, and fun factor. 
uh, and they're all weighted differently. Fun factor actually carries the biggest percentage. It's 20% of a course's mark, whereas conditioning is only five. Uh, and that's something we changed a while ago um, because I think in this day and age, I don't think we need to put as much emphasis on conditioning. Um, you got different courses in different climates in this country. You've got different courses with different budgets. Um, courses working with some pretty constrained budgets, you know, like a Jasper or Highlands when they're in a national park. Uh, and then it just kind of all gets put together and, you know, mean, mean averages are spit out and I get a list of all the courses and they have to have 10 ratings in our system over the last six years to be eligible because I can't have a course with three people rated it and that gets judged against the course that has 50 people rated it. And then, and then the list is the list and, and then we start discussing. Is there a requirement for these panelists to play X amount of golf courses to sort of validate their ranking procedure? Yeah, they're supposed to rate 10 courses per year. Okay. Every year I ask them, I need to see 10 ratings input in the system. And maybe that's not 10 golf courses they haven't played because that's probably not realistic, especially in a country as gigantic as Canada. Yeah. Country is, uh, let's frankly, let's call it spade a spade. It's tough to travel through this country. Mm -hmm. um, it's expensive and there's not a lot of big major hubs to go from point to point. Um, so maybe it is some courses they haven't played, but maybe it's a course they haven't played in four or five years and they go back and they see it after a renovation or whatever. And they just say, oh, I got to go back and get a fresher look at this course. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. I love this conversation. This is amazing. I appreciate you sharing all of this with us. I feel like yeah, no we're jockeying for a position over here on the West side, some way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah. So it's I nice knew that to, was coming. to share it yeah. all with us. Well, By the way, this is a job interview. Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a break from your jockeying position before we continue to dive deeper and deeper onto this top yeah. 100 because we got loads yeah. coming. Uh, but I want to know more about you, Jason. I want to know kind of your journey to getting into that position as editor at Score Golf. Obviously, taking the taking the throne from uh, Mr. Weeks and then yeah. moving into that position. Like, how did that all go for you? What about even like how you got into golf, right? Like, let's get back sure. there yeah. and then end where you kind of transitioned into this role. Yeah. So, um, so I grew up in a pretty small town about an hour, uh, an hour North of Toronto um, called Blackstock, um, tiny little village actually. And then, I kind of associate myself with a town called Port Perry because that's where I went to high school and played my hockey and fastball and, and golf and whatnot. And uh, I went to Carleton University for journalism. I should say, like, I started playing young. I mean, I, I was out on the golf course, an executive course, you know, when I was five or six. You know, Who introduced a, you to the game, Jason? We got to know that. For yeah, my dad and my uncle. My dad played. My dad actually didn't really pick up the game until kind of later in his, I think, I don't think he, I think he was maybe in his 20s before he really picked up the game. So, you know, he, when I was, when I was born, he was into it by then. Um, my uncle who I didn't see very often because he lived far away, but when he would come and visit or when we would go up there, he was a really good player. So we, so we would play and uh, I would play like with a, a three iron that was too short and an eight iron that was too long. Those are my vivid memories of walking around this executive course with a three iron that was like cut down with like electrical tape on the grip. <laughs> and it was too short, uh, you know, even as like a five or six year old and an eight iron that for some reason was too long. I, I just don't get the juxtaposition. It should have been the other way around. And I guess yeah. a putter, but I just remember the three iron, the eight iron. Got the driving iron. I like that. <laughs> yeah, and then and then I remember a two wood came along at some point. Oh, the old wooden head, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, persimmon for sure. Yeah, right. Um, I like that you're not afraid of hitting those clubs that have 
low yeah, loss, the tiniest right? sweet like, spots of yeah, all time. Give it to yeah. me. Yes. Yeah. Bit of a poor stigma and, behind them. Parksy's like that too. He likes it challenging. Though. I don't I don't like it anymore. I want all the help I can get. <laughs> um absolutely. You gotta take advantage of technology. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh you know, I played a lot of golf as a kid, you know, a little tiny bit competitively and stuff, but nothing really, you know, I wasn't great. I was I was good, but I wasn't really great. And then I went to Carleton University in Ottawa for journalism and I graduated in two thousand one and um I wouldn't say I did the best job of preparing myself for the real world when I was in school. Um, and then after graduation, I kind of just worked at like a bar for the summer. And I was, I was, my whole philosophy was, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna work at this bar. I'm going to make a bunch of cash. I'm going to have fun. And when the fall rolls around, I'll start looking for a job. And then the fall rolled around and nine 11 happened mm-hmm. and there was just no jobs out there at all. Mm-hmm. So I spent like a year and a half, out of school with a journalism degree, doing nothing with it, just working at various restaurants. And the long story is I remember playing golf with a buddy of mine and he came, he, he went into the clubhouse, grabbed a couple beers and he came out with a copy of score golf magazine. And I knew what score golf was because it was always in our house growing up. Cause my dad would always bring it home for the instruction articles. Right. And I remember just kind of looking at it flipping it open and noticing that they didn't really have that many people on staff. And I knew who Bob was because I think everybody knew who Bob was back in the day, right? And, and now, certainly. And I just sent him an email and just said, like, hey, this is who I am. I've played golf since I was young. I've worked at golf courses. I'm a journalism major, et cetera. And he invited me in for a chat. And it, was not, it wasn't really a job interview. It was just like, why don't you come in and chat? Maybe I can steer you in the right direction. And this kind of shows what an awesome dude Bob is. And uh, so we, I went in, had a chat. And it was great. And then, like, a month later, he called. And he said, I think I have a, a job. For you if, if you're interested come in for an interview i came in for an interview and the, and the interview went great and for sure thought i had the job as assistant editor and then it was a funny story what happened was he said to me like i'll i'll let you know if you get the job or not uh by five o'clock tonight it was like early december 2002 he's like i'm going on vacation for like all of december so i'm going to get this sorted out today so he's like expect an email when you get home so no email comes, right? For like <laughs> days true. and for weeks, nothing comes. I'm just freaking out. And I'm like, I guess I didn't get it, blah, blah, blah. And then he calls me like two days before Christmas. And he's like, I just came into the office to get some stuff for whatever reason. And he's like, and this is before smartphones, before you could even access your work email remotely, like none of that stuff, obviously. And he's like, I just noticed that all of the emails I sent to my last in the office are stuck in my inbox. So he's like, it's all good. Like it's all taken care of. Right. And then sure enough, like uh, a few days into the new year, he sent me an email and said, you know, welcome to the team. And, and that was it. And that was my first job at a journalism school. And I'm still there. And I went from assistant editor to managing editor and then to editor in 2012 when Bob was still around. And then Bob left score golf in 2015. Um, and then, then I was really on my own and, and here we are today. It's quite an impressive um, obviously longevity to stay with this the same magazine this whole time, but also a magazine that's like quite fond to Canadians. It's really the only decent golf magazine that's been around for a long time. It's really the only one that I can think of that I would actually that's read. That's standing, yeah. Yeah, sure. and it's yeah. like, it, it is quite a title to have with you. So that's 40 nice. years, 40 years this year, score golf turned, um, you know, which we celebrated in style with the special issue in the spring and some other things. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, 40 years is like longer than McLean's lasted, mm. yeah. you know, yeah, and that's you think fantastic. Of like 
you think of like Canadian, big Canadian magazines, it has been around for a long time, which is obviously a testament to, you know, the owner and the publisher and, and certainly guys like Weeksy who really put score golf on the map and, and, you know, turned it from just being a magazine to really a, a brand in Canadian golf. Yeah. And I imagine that uh, kind of led you to so many opportunities as well, outside of just the magazine and getting to play golf, like events that you get to see things that you get to be a part of. I mean, I'm sure even from a tour standpoint, the things that you yeah. got to see over the years. It's yeah, it's been fun. Um, you know, things like, you know, the president's cup and, you know, the tiger weir match stands out. And that um, was amazing. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. It was, that was awesome. And, um, seeing Brooke Henderson win the Canadian Women's Open in Regina, um, you know, the people in Regina, the way they, I mean, they're crazy about golf in Saskatchewan, uh, crazy mm-hmm. about it. And the way they supported that tournament and, uh, you know, terrible weather on the final day, but just, just to follow her around and just see the reception that she got. And, 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 you know, even like Mike Weir, when he lost the Canadian Open in 2004 to BJ Singh, like that's probably the craziest event I've seen up close. Really? Like, you know, being inside the ropes for all, you know, 20 holes or 21 holes, whatever ended up being that day. And just, I mean, the people, there were so many people there and they were so supportive of Weir that it was really, really too much. It, I really think it did hinder him that day. Just like a little you know, too much pressure. <laughs> it was too much pressure. And there was, and the crowd control wasn't what it needed to be. And, uh, you know, he's kind of a methodical player to begin with. And, you know, if you talk to like some of the photographers and like, you know, the PJ tour radio guys, they'll tell you, you know, where's he's got the rabbit ears. Like you gotta be pretty still or he'll, he'll give you a bad look back in the day, you know, when oh, he was no. a top player. And it was like every shot that day, as soon as he was about to take the club back, you'd hear some Yahoo going like, come on, where's he? And he'd have to like step back and go through his whole routine again. It it was just like the longest day. And it was, that was kind of too bad to see him lose, but that was, that was a really, really crazy day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess one thing I want to kind of get into is just, yeah, why you chose the path of journalism. Like what was it that attracted you to storytelling, covering things and getting into journalism? Yeah, it was just always something that I loved when I was when I was six years old. Um, how old are you guys? Are you guys thirty-two for twenty? So I'm forty-two years old, and I don't know if you guys even remember this or know about it. But when I was in, there was like this series of books back in the day called the Mister Men series. It was like Mister Strong and Mister Wrong and Mister you know, smart to miss all of these. And they're just these little books. And when I was in grade one, like I wrote one and it was called Mr. Itchy. (laughs) And, and, and and my teacher was like, just so over the moon about it. And she ended up, I mean, I actually ironically found it the other day going through some things and I was showing it to my daughter and I was looking Uh, back. I'm like, Oh, spell that word wrong. Spell that word wrong. Six years (laughs) old comes out. Where's my grammar? Yeah. Just, just picking everything (laughs) apart. But uh, like, it's just, that was what I always wanted to do. I just loved writing and I just, uh, you know, I, I always kind of did well in like the public speaking and, you know, writing fiction stories when I was young and, you know, always just kind of wanted to grow up and be like a sports writer, you know, always thought I would, uh, you know, one day be covering the Leafs, 
you know, for one of the big dailies, you know, diehard Toronto fan here. Uh, sad to say, sad to we'll say. We'll edit that out, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. We're Oilers fans, there's nothing. <laughs> I know, we're all, be, it's almost as bad. Yeah, now. We're, we're, we're just we're as bad. We're sharing each other's misery, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was just, I don't know, I guess I just knew at a really young age that I want to pursue journalism. Did like co-ops in high school and stuff and uh, cool. And went away to Carlton and, and did that. So from a journalism standpoint, from an editor standpoint, well, I guess, no, you wouldn't have been editor at that time, but assistant editor. When Mike slipped on that green jacket, was that like the alarm bells are going off? Like we have a lot of work to do right now. Oh, yeah. That's such an awesome story. So 2003, the year he won the Masters, that was my first year in the magazine. And in my first five months there or something like that, I remember Dave Barr won on the Champions Tour and his first start as a Champions Tour member. He played like some senior events, but it was his first year as a member of the Champions Tour and he won like the Royal Caribbean Classic and his first start as a Champions Tour member. And then Weir won two events, right? If you remember, he won the Bob Hope in Riviera. And then he wins the Masters. And I remember David Moreland won on the Nationwide Tour. And then I remember Marlene Stewart-Street won the... uh, U.S. senior women's amateur that fall when she was 69 years old. She wow. beat a woman who was 19 years younger than she was, oh, you know, which is probably the least talked about accomplishment by a Canadian golfer, but maybe as impressive as any. Um, she did that in uh, Austin, Texas, in 100 degree heat, playing 36 holes in the final day. No big deal. Yeah, shout oh out to that. Yeah, yeah she was 69. What's up? Nice. Yeah, right. Wow. Beat a woman who was 50 years old. Um, but I was like, this is crazy. Like, I am like, what am I walking into here? Because <laughs> yeah. like Canadian golf was never that good. Right. Um, yeah, going to rethink this so now. <laughs> I, I, well, I always said I was the, I was Canadian golf's lucky charm. But I remember like when we were on the masters, I was just sitting at home. I, I, my brother and I owned a townhouse at the time together. And we were just sitting there watching. I was just a fan. I was nothing more than a fan because mm-hmm. I wasn't important enough to be doing anything on the masters. And then going into the office the next day, and it was just an all hands on deck meeting. Weeks he's down in Augusta, he's on the speaker phone, and we just literally stopped the press of our May issue. The only time in the history of the magazine, they literally, our, our issue was on press, and they had to call and spend a lot of money to say, like, literally stop the press. Yeah, we need to change this up. We need to change this. You know, we need to add uh, new cover, you know, third new cover, 30 something page section. Wow. And the funny thing was, is like, I was the, I was the third man there. There was Bob Weeks, obviously. And then there was a guy named Peter Robinson, who was the managing editor at the time. And they basically covered all the Weir stuff in addition to some freelancers. I didn't really have any part of the Mike Weir wins the Masters section. But because of that, they're like, you got to do all of the equipment section, which like, honestly, is not my cup of tea. Even to this day, like, if there's one thing I don't like writing about, it's golf equipment. So I had to do the whole equipment section by myself. And the funny story is um, we let a typo go to press. It's in the magazine. If you find the 2003 Mike Weir wins the masters where I was writing about a golf shirt and forgot to include the letter R. Oh, See, that's good. Little yeah. golf yeah. shit. <laughs> so it was like, uh, I think it was like, I think it was Ashworth and it was like the Ashworth knit shit. shit. <laughs> that is and, awesome. uh, so that's, that's kind of my claim to fame. My that's contribution cool. to that magazine is that I was the one that wrote that and, and nobody caught it. Cause I don't think our, 
I don't think our proofing system was very careful uh, at that moment because we were when scrambling that, to get it. When did that come full, full circle for you guys? Uh, I just, I remember when it came out and like nobody cared. Nobody cared. We're like, whatever, man. We put together like this 30 page section in a week and yeah, who cares? Nobody's reading about the golf shirts anyways. They're just concentrated on Weir's Masters one. I've always wondered about that too with the equipment. I'm like, especially like if you did, if you were to do it nowadays, like what do you even write? Like if it's like with drivers or something, it's like, yeah, it's long. Well, they're I, all I so know. good. Yeah. Right? They're, they're all, all so, so good. good. Yeah. And there's quite honestly, there's, I mean, there's websites nowadays devoted specifically to golf equipment. They yeah, do a good job works. of it. You know, they do the independent testing where my golf spy and places like that, um, you know, golf WRX. I mean, that, they're really into that stuff and that has never never been my scene like mm-hmm. i just you know i like playing golf i don't necessarily like analyzing every single new driver or new golf storyteller golf the market yeah yeah exactly maybe take us into your process a little bit about like yeah how do you develop your content and your stories are you the kind of person that's always got a notebook keeping notes are you in recording voice memos to yourself like yeah, how do you go about developing your stories usually? Um, I mean, I think I think sometimes the hardest part, especially um, in a sport that really is a niche sport, especially in Canada, when you don't have a great number of, I mean, a decent number, but not a great number of touring professionals to really write about it, at least at the game's highest levels. Sometimes the hardest part is just figuring out what the story is, you know. And then once you get that, um, and you do all your requisite research, whether it's a profile or a feature, whatever. For me, I like, I'm always writing the story. Like for the next, if I'm gonna have to have that story produced in a month and it's a, it's a big feature, I am like writing that story constantly in my head, mm-hmm. in, the sh- in the shower, driving my kids to school, whatever it is. Like that's like that story never leaves me. And I'm just like kind of constantly thinking about, well, how can I say this? How can I say that? Yeah. And then it's like, once you've, you like, Oh, that would be an awesome way. If I transition from that paragraph to that paragraph, then you got to go and make sure that you write it down before you forget. So to me, like the writing process is far beyond just sitting down at a laptop and typing away. It's just like, it's constantly going on and then it's just getting it on paper. Yeah. That's You're totally right. Like you're kind of just always working on this thing, whether it's like, okay, how much room do I have to operate in? Okay. This is it. I'll break it into up three chunks of it beginning middle yeah. end and then kind of filling in some details and it was yeah i just wanted to know kind of like yeah are you the kind of person that likes to record things in a memo or like get to the notebook right i don't I, i've done i have recorded things in a memo sometimes but most of the time it's just like jotting something down in a notebook or just like opening up a, a doc word doc on the computer and just like firing a bunch of random like sentences down you know and sometimes you produce a story and like the first sentence you wrote is like you know the fourth last line of the story yeah but you're just like that would be you. a really cool way to start tying this whole thing together and then i'll figure out how to get there later yeah. on i think that's the best way you said it in the sense you just sit down open it up and do it amateurs need inspiration professionals sit down and write and it's like just put something <laughs> oh, on paper and go from there yeah for sure for mm-hmm. sure what what is it like road mapping the sort of process for the magazine take us a little bit into how you guys 
plan, so to speak, or, or project what, what your issues are going to be? And is yeah. it, is it based around a narrative where you're focused on, okay, what's upcoming for events and things like that? Are you trying to filter anything really creative in there? Talk us through it's, that. It's really not event driven at all. I mean, based on the type of publication we are, like we're not a, you know, a golf week where we're kind of putting together weekly um, summarizations of certain events, right? Um, so you take a magazine and let's say you've got, you know, it's say it's a 96 page magazine and say you've got say 50 something editorial pages to work with. I mean, you just start taking pages away. You're like, okay, so I got three columns, that's minus three. I've got a cover, I've got contents, that's minus three more. I've got instruction, that's minus four. I've got this, this, and this. And then you get down, okay, now I've got 26 pages to really work with here. And sometimes we've themed magazines in the past. Sometimes it doesn't have a theme. Uh, sometimes you know what the, the main feature and the cover story is going to be, and you're going to just find out how many pages that takes to tell and then fill in everything else in after that. Um, you know, we've done issues like, the power issue I remember was one that I thought we did a really good job on. It was actually my first one after Bob left where everything in the magazine was revolved around the word power. It was, I did this cover story on Brooke Henderson because she was emerging as probably the most powerful influence in Canadian golf moving forward. And we did a story on Tony Finau and we did a story on this woman here in Southwestern Ontario, who's like a, one of the Canadian long drive champions. And she was like this, five foot four, you know, two kids. And like, here she is, you know, bombing balls, 320 yards. I did a story on her. We did a interview with Tim Fincham because he was the most powerful person in the game. Did a story on Taylor Pendrith, who's obviously, you know, very current well, now. Yeah. This yeah. was four years ago. Great um, weekend. We did that. that. He sure was. And, you know, we, we did a really cool thing where, you know, Taylor's background is in baseball. He's a competitive baseball player turned golfer. And so we got him out at Summit Golf Club, where he's a member here in Toronto area. And I don't know if you guys saw this, but we did this really cool photo shoot where he had like eye black on, hat on backwards. We got him some like big league chew. So he was like blowing a bubble. So, and he was hitting a driver, um, you know, hitting wiffle balls, but we were capturing them in motion. So it was like this cross between baseball player and golfer. Oh. And, uh, and that issue, yeah, it was just all around power. So so some issues are themed and some issues are not. It's just like, okay, let's do a really good profile or let's do a really good yeah. feature story and then figure out everything else after that. Just being creative. For sure, yeah. And not just me too. It's like talking with the art director and the publisher and other staffers and looking for ideas. What's the transition like now from analog to digital, so to speak? And, and what do you foresee as far as the reception of, of print mag to digital to whatever the future holds? Well, it's, I mean, print's been under the gun for a long time, right? Like there's no secret there. We've seen a lot of print magazines in Canada die and, and elsewhere die. And it's a, it's a struggle all the time. Um, and I don't think it's a struggle with readership. I still think a lot of people like to hold a physical magazine and read it, even though we get so much of our information on phones these days. Yeah. It's a struggle with the advertisers because, you know, they're just looking at numbers and you know, they believe it's a digital world. Um, you know, we've been lucky to keep going for 40 years and hopefully we go many more, but it's, it's kind of a struggle. We messed around with some digital issues before, but 
you know, it was back in those, when they did the flip books and they're like hard, it's not a good reading experience mm-hmm. to me. Um, it might be a good reading experience if it's something like, you know, the morning read, if you guys subscribe to that, that comes in. And like I say, it's like very current, but when you're talking about like two, 3000 word stories that have lots of shelf life, it's better if it's something that you can physically hold it's in tangible. Your hand. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. You're still kind of catering to a demographic that I wouldn't say is against technology, but is still trying to yeah, we still tr- into that space. We still trend older for sure. Just yeah. given, given the sport of golf, really. The thing is, awesome. too, it's it's get, it's sent out to golf courses. Like everybody's going to walk past the counter at the shop and grab one. I mean, yeah. I always put them up, and they they'd be gone by the afternoon. Yeah. So, which I mean, is which is always good to hear because sometimes when you're involved, and I've always struggled this with, you know, sometimes when you're involved in producing it, like there's always this doubt. You're like, are people reading this? You know, I, you know, like <laughs> I remember the garbage, right? Like I remember when I didn't work here, I always picked up Score Golf Man. Are people still doing this? And then you hear stories like that, and you go to a golf town, and like the first day it comes out, and you'll see 300 magazines on the rack, and you'll go two weeks later, and there's only 20 Come left. On. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's good. Speaking about media and things of that nature, I kind of want to get your opinion on something. I've had an idea cooking around in my my uh, brain, we'll call it for now. Um, <laughs> the computer, the engine, who knows? But the kitchen. We'll it's call been a it. while since we've had like a great golf, like movie or show or anything like that. What do you do? You think that there needs to be a resurgence or could be in that space? Because I got to preface this. I want to I want to make a golf show mini series. I don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be called Golf Buds. I'm going to put it out there for the world because this goes into digital media. And because I, when is the last great thing? Like Vagger Bants was out. You got Happy Gilmore. Like there hasn't yeah. been. Anything. You're looking not so much a movie. You're looking like Seinfeld, but golf. Yeah, I kind of want like a Seinfeld. You know what's funny? Golf. It's just there better, is a there is a very there is a very popular. Canadian comic slash actor that tried to go down that path and is probably still trying to go down that path. I can't, I don't, I'm not going to say who it is. Okay. Um, and he wanted to do something. He wanted to do a series that was based around golf. Yeah. And, and maybe that will happen. I don't know where he is with that right now, but it's I know so relevant trying. though. You should put yeah, him totally in touch relevant. with me. Cause yeah, I maybe we should connect ideas. with them. You know what? Uh, I just, don't don't know how to write. You know what? I, I think I think where he got some resistance, and this kind of makes some sense. Um, where he got some resistance is that the, what I from what I understand is that what, the people he was pitching it to just felt the game was too white. Mm-hmm. Just felt like that. That's a and especially if you look at television now. I mean, like everything. I mean, like from Modern Family to like Shit's Creek or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, these, the shows that they put on now are very far from just white people, mm-hmm. white males, right? They're looking for diversity and inclusion as they should. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I'm not saying that that's so 100% that's an true of the golf industry, but that's the perception that's out there. And I think that was some of the resistance. Okay. Hmm. Very interesting. Point. That it's is a, a good point. obstacle to know you need to address that because yeah, that's well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like I just got off a zoom meeting earlier uh, this evening because uh, I'm sitting on the PGA of Canada's diversity and inclusion task force, 
which is wow. which is a number of different people involved from from all different walks of life just just trying to eradicate this you know belief that just golf is just for white men right and yeah. trying to get more people into the game yeah because golf if you listen to our podcast you would know that we are big believers in what golf teaches you about life outside of just mm-hmm. going around and chasing a ball the like integrity aspects building relationships being able to spend more than 20 minutes with someone and have real conversations it's all yeah there's tons of great lessons and i i don't think that should be exclusive to a certain group of people right i think 100 everyone may have challenges depending on it's like even just me work time it's like i just go out i'll go pitch a couple balls around the green because i like that time but everyone needs to get to the point where it's like you appreciate it enough that like whatever scale you can go play golf. I know youth on course has that program mm-hmm. for the kids in Canada where mm-hmm. they pay 300 bucks and they can go play golf courses like the Northern bear for five bucks. And it's like, those need to exist so people can do it because Chris and I always talk that like, we just need a place to go hit chips and putts and like that time out there where you're working on your game. is just, there's something to it. And then when you go meet new people, the integrity aspect, like, Golf needs to be there for everyone. It's this is getting golf, very Matt Janella. Golf just gets pri- get pigeonholed though well, into like a privileged section because like that's pi- where it goes. They pigeonhole themselves. Oh, one hundred by being like we are this. When it's like, I had a meeting today with a guy who deals with intellectual property and like building books for kids. That's teaching. And it's like you got to teach people that these things out here are like they're valuable. And if you, mm-hmm. if you keep it from them, I think right now is the cool part where golf is like getting accessible to everyone where you got the top golfs, you have Tiger Woods building that putting course thing. Like you got yes. Point Grey opening up. I mean, that's yeah. a private club, but like opening up a practice facility where you don't need to go play. You can just go chip and putt and probably let's just really ask the question, time. boys, Jason, what do you think is, is really important moving forward? for the sustainability and, and growing inclusiveness and awareness around golf. Like, well, what think, do you think I, it's going to take? Well, I think you guys answered answer the question a little bit is, I mean, yes, golf has always been, had this um, stereotype of being privileged in an elitist game. But I think the other thing that stops people from getting into golf is um, it's also a very difficult game. Oh yeah. And um, expensive. But the problem is, is that, it doesn't have to be a game for everyone to go out and try to shoot a number. Right. You know, you guys talked about the virtues of the game. I think if non-golfers understood that part of the reason, and I don't know about you guys, and I'm sure you're the same as me, a large part of the reason you play the game is not necessarily to try and go out and break 80 or break 90 or whatever. It's just to go out and like hang out with three of your buddies and like see a beautiful place, be outdoors do something that's somewhat athletic, get some exercise in, maybe have a couple of drinks, have some laughs and then, and go home. Right. Um, and I recognize that it can be difficult for a non-golfer for non-golfers to go and do that and go do it on a golf course. And if they don't know what they're doing, they're holding everybody else up. So there's that intimidation factor of, I don't know how to golf. I don't know how to behave on a golf course. I don't know if the golf course or the golfers will welcome you there right? to take steps to get people to understand that let's get into the game. Let's find out that it's not just this extremely difficult game and it's not all about just trying to win a million dollars, $2 million at a place like Wingfoot. 
yeah. but it's about but it's about going out and just enjoying time with with other people or meeting new people you don't always have to play with your friends you can i mean i've had some great interactions on the golf course where you just go out and you get paired with two people and you end up having an amazing time and, and learning about these two random strangers some of my best friends in life that like chris i've always played golf with but like being that single going out you get paired up with my buddy Thomas who lives in Calgary, right? Just a random day. Three and a half hours later, you learn a lot about who someone is and you're like, we can connect on a deeper level now. That's like, that's what golf is amazing for. That's why I think things like even like sh- little short game facilities, like we were just talking to Dave Zibrick at Point Grain, like their new practice facility. You know, they have like four or five greens set up there that they, you know, built on two reclaimed holes. And it's like, man, I would... Just go do that. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a golfer, so I enjoy that. But like for someone that doesn't play and is intimidated by the whole 18-hole process, why don't you go learn how to chip and putt? Yeah. It's nice out. Go place a beer beside you. Maybe they have speakers going and you have some music playing. It's like, dude, that's a great evening. Yeah. Go out there for an hour and a half, two hours, and leave feeling great. Probably run enjoy into the someone. Sun probably run into someone like you out there chipping and doing the same. Exactly. And you're like, Hey, you want to have a little competition here? Get the heart beating. Right. Yeah. It then- starts, it starts there and there needs to be more places like that. And there's, you know, there, you know, this whole idea of, you know, cities talking about getting rid of their municipal courses is such oh, a shame because me. that's where a lot of people get their starts. And, you know, I mean, we don't need golf courses to be designed and just be like so hard, you know, we need, we need shorter golf courses. We need easier golf courses. I'm sure when you had Janelle on, I mean, maybe he talked about winter park, you know, mm-hmm. places like that down in Florida, you know, that, you know, they have a, they have a public putting green, like right on behind yeah. the ninth tee. I mean, you don't have to play. You can just literally walk up there one day. If you lived in the town with a putter and a ball and just putt for an hour, just for free, you don't, you don't even awesome. have to have a tea time that day. We have right? that, yeah. I mean, right in Edmonton, Victoria, it's a muni, muni track. They have two huge putting greens right there. People, I mean, I don't go to Vic to play. I, I go there to use the chipping greens and the putting greens. Like, it's mm-hmm. just a nice spot. You're in the mm-hmm. middle of the river valley. It's, it usually gets a ton of sun. Perfect. Uh, yeah. That's what needs, that's what golf needs. Just make it more inclusive, more fun. More Absolutely. I love it that way. I'm almost thinking there needs to be like a score 50, not like the premium ones, but like, well, yeah. And, and like, and that's obviously another, you know, bring it back to the top 100. That's obviously another huge criticism we get when the top 100 rolls around is, you know, like, why are you including, why are you including a bunch of these private golf courses or why including all these courses that cost $250 to play? But in non top 100 years, we do the top 59 public courses and we do two rankings there. One is just the top 59 public courses by rating, which is basically the same as the top 100. But then the other is the top 59 public courses by value. Mm-hmm. When we just kind of take their, their, their highest uh, rate, you know, which is like a, you know, whatever, a Saturday afternoon and just kind of d- divide it into the rating they get to, to come up with this SG value factor. And we've put that in and, you know, cool. um, mm-hmm. and I think that's, you know, that's something that we did to address the criticism of the top 100 being, having a lot of private clubs and high price clubs. And now we do that. And that's just as popular with a lot of golfers as our top 100 is. And, and that's how it's going to be though. Cause like the best golf clubs have the best infrastructure to keep like every, like there's just a lot going on there that makes them in. A, it's like the best amateur player versus the best pro. Like it's almost, they're in a different league. Let's have yeah. that list. But then 
yeah, for the average human, like let's give the value list where they can go, they can go see where the best deals are. And I can maybe make a little golf trip on this. Okay. Jason, we touched on it real quick here and you kind of alluded to it. Winged foot. We're coming off a U.S. open. What's your take on the Bryson era and things moving forward? Well, things move, it's, it's definitely not going to stop. I mean, I think the storyline coming out of Wingfoot is uh, you know, what's he going to do to Augusta National? You know, if he can do that to Wingfoot, what's he going to do to Augusta? Which ironically is, you know, it's it's going to be what Tiger Woods did to Augusta in 1997 before they tiger-proofed it, you know? And we kind of celebrated that victory. A lot of people celebrated that victory for obvious reasons, but there were a lot of people back then who did not celebrate that victory because of the way he went and played. Augusta, which was just rip driver everywhere and have wedges into all the par fives, which is you know what Bryson's going to try and do. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy this year's U.S. Open. I mean, I just I don't like when a guy wins by six. First of all, I mean, like any time a guy wins a major by six, um, unless maybe it's Tiger, only because there's that whole chasing history aspect mm-hmm. of it. It's just not enjoyable. I mean, you want it coming down three or four or five guys with a chance to win on the back nine on Sunday. Right. Um, I was hoping for a lot of carnage and it it just didn't happen. We should have had you on yesterday. This would have been much easier to convince the crew. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it didn't, it just, it didn't happen because of the way the leaders went about the golf course, you know, Bryson being the best example. I mean, like here's the, here's, the way you can tie a bow in the U S open is at the start of the week. This is what I put in my column this week at the start of the week, you know, every shot that went into the rough, the first thing that the announcers did was talk about the resulting lie. Okay. So a guy hits driver off, whatever, and it goes in the rough and they're like, Oh, that sat down. That sat down. That's going to be tough. You didn't hear any of that on Sunday. You know why? Because they knew by that time that it didn't matter. Cause it Bryson doesn't was driving matter. 360 yards down and yeah, his ball disappeared in the rough. Who cares? He's going to wedge. doesn't matter. He's yeah. He's going to go up and just hit a wedge and, and yeah. give him credit. Like he obviously, he obviously came up with this game plan and he did a lot of things to, to change his body. I mean like that. I don't think a lot of people would have done. I mean, he went full commit calories full a day commit. and all of this stuff. Right. Uh, he set himself up a game plan and it worked just, didn't make for very exciting golf. I have to jump in on this though. At our tour pod yesterday, recapping the U.S. Open, like I was extremely critical of Bryson, and I've been very critical of Bryson for a long time. But I did go back and I did watch the highlights again, and I mean, I did watch the whole day, and I can't truly hate on what he did because you know what? If you look at his approach shots, in he was hitting them short, he was rolling them up, he was letting the green mm-hmm. do the work. That's something we haven't seen him do. He put the absolute lights out all week. That's really what got him to where it was. And they put such a huge emphasis on hitting the fairways. Matthew Wolf hit two on Saturday and shot 65. The, it does not matter with these guys. We've seen this. Brooks has said it with back-to-back U.S. Opens and back-to-back PGA Championships. I don't need to hit the fairway. I can gouge it out of the rough. I'm fine. And that's proven time and time again. Uh, it, it makes no difference. The only way that you're going, I mean, there's many different ways, but if you really want to make a U.S. Open more inclusive for everyone, don't have it tight. Because yeah, you got to widen the fairways. Widen it and then t- and tighten things up at the front. Bake those greens out. 
hard them up. You, you spoke about Augusta. The only way that you're going to make Augusta difficult, they're wide fairways, but don't have rough, have almost none, and literally suck every bit of moisture out of those greens so that it's difficult for everyone. It's fair then. That golf course is a good test for every single player in the field. So why bother with these difficult little things that they're doing on the side with rough and, oh, we're graduating it like that? No, just leave it open and dry out the greens. That's the only defense that the golf courses have nowadays on the PGA Tour. Well, and the thing is, like, when you have deep rough like that, lots of times all it does is prevent a ball from finding real trouble. Yeah, which is why at Augusta, I mean, even though they had that first cut, which I wish they did, and I wish it was just, like, true wall-to-wall fairway. Um you know, lots of times you'll see guys drive it into the trees and drive them in the pine straw and have to chip out unless they get lucky and they have like the Phil Mickelson, you know, tiny little shoot at the green on 13 there. But because the rough is not preventing the balls from going into trees, you know, you get some guys who drive it wide and they're like, no, I got no shot at the green. I got no angle here. Right. But at wing foot, you know, Bryson's driving it offline, but you know, say his ball's hooking and hooking, but then it gets caught up in the deep rough and it just stops. And then now it's just like, does he have the brute power to muscle a wedge 150 yards? And as you said, bounced up in the green. And he, he showed some great touch with some of his wedges, oh, yeah. 100%. And you're right. He did putt extremely well, although I think you can make the argument that his putting style. I hate it. I'm not, I'm not sure how that's allowed. When I agree. I think that's good. Anchor, when anchoring is bad. It's Rory came out like, and said he, that he's taking advantage of what the game is right now. He Bryson is. Just he finds is. And I wasn't a big, like, I wasn't a big fan of when they came in with the anchoring law only because I think like the, the horse had left the barn by that time. Like, yeah. I mean, guys were doing it for two decades and all of a sudden they prevented now it. It's a and problem. it was it. It was a kind of a knee jerk reaction, but like what he's doing, if, if, you know, if, if Adam Scott can't putt the way he wants and Webb Simpson can, although Simpson's turned into a great putter, like, I don't know why Bryson can do what he does, but, but whatever. But I, I think you're right. Like that all the deep rough is doing is giving a bigger advantage to the longer guys because yep. everyone's missing fairways and they just have shorter clubs in. Yeah, right. They're yeah. just having a wedge instead of a five it's iron. Definitely a lot harder to hit right. like a seven iron or a six iron than a pitching wedge or a nine. Yeah. Right. Like, Absolutely. Easy yeah. to dig that up. I do want to quickly transition back into something really quickly. We'll touch on a couple things, then we'll shoot it over to parks and then we'll, we'll get you out here. Cause I know we're, we're dragging you pretty late, but I wanted to kind of go back and, talk about how you when you started analyzing golf courses and started rating them and now you've kind of traveled a lot seen a lot of golf courses around the world did you take inspiration from those other golf courses and you know you mentioned Bally Bunny and other courses like that earlier did you ever take inspiration from that and kind of use that towards your ranking kind of think okay this has I like similarities of this and this is I can see where the, what they were trying to do there and have you ever done that with the courses well, that you've seen the, outside of the country the biggest I mean, the biggest thing I should say, and, and as I, I'm not one of the raiders for the top okay. 100. So we've always had a longstanding policy that nobody on staff at Score Golf Ooh, like is allowed lot, to be actually. a raider. We just administer, involved. yeah, we administer the rankings um, just so there's no, I mean, uh, there's tons of accusations that come in. No in the, top 100. Hands in the yeah. parking lot. <laughs> right? Like, there's no, like, okay, I see that such and such course is advertising. I mean, like, that's, yeah. It's just, okay, I apologize. I thought you always had a bit of a say no, in that. Then. No, no. And Bob was never a Raider. I'm not a Raider. Okay. But okay. certainly when I go and play golf courses, I mean, I'm making my own judgments on them, just as we all are. Right? Okay, then and, let's uh, get into those judgments then. 
Oh, wow, we gotta have a whole nother pod. Man. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I want to know then, if we're gonna talk about judgments, he's gonna hang and up. I did on see soon. this on a post that I, I'm not. I can't remember the show that it was on, but I saw a quote. What were your most overrated courses and underrated courses on that list, and ones that you think should have been on that list? Yeah, I, I don't mind talking about that. I've said it on a couple of podcasts. I haven't like got any hate mails yet. So maybe those podcasts just weren't as popular as yours. Um, we'll see what comes through the pipeline. With yeah, yeah. Pays has booked a flight already to <laughs> yeah. Toronto. So be careful. Tread lightly here. I'll defend you. Um, I think that uh, the forest course at Glencoe is overrated. Uh, I think Glencoe is a great club. Massive I don't. Club. I don't particularly think the forest course there is a great golf course. I just really don't. It just wasn't for me. Uh, I didn't find the land inspiring. Um, I thought it was artificially difficult. I thought it was over bunker. Um, the, when I played, um, the greens were still pretty firm. Uh, they're all raised up, which they had to do in the renovation because of the flooding. And there's like these just cavernous bunkers in front of all the greens, which means that you have to hit the ball straight up in the air and have it come straight down in order to stop it on the green. And that's a small percentage of golfers who can do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that one to me, it was just, it, I was disappointed. Conversely, the country club in Calgary is amazing. It's an amazing piece of property. I am really, really high on great properties with lots of movement in them. Um, you know, and, and the country club, it's got a great piece of property. I think it was like 42 on the list, which I thought should have been higher. Um, Royal Montreal, the blue course there. I've never been hugely impressed by that course. And that course was a top 10 at one point in the country. Again, amazing club, maybe the best club in the country. Um, the oldest golf club in the country, obviously, you know, the course is there. It's on a different location than it was back in the, um, late 19th century. Um, but the blue course for me is just, it's okay. The property's not particularly stunning to me. Um, and it was like a top 10 course for a long time. I think now it's into the forties or something, but yeah, that's another one that I think was overrated. Um, underrated courses. I think one that should definitely be on the list. That's not as talking rock. Oh, which I really? don't know. If, yeah. I, I don't know so. if you guys have played yeah, talking rock. I've never yeah. played a Cody oh, yeah. has. And you have I think it's, I think I thought it was really, really good. I thought it was really cool place. Uh, I thought it was like almost like a, I don't want to say a poor man's version because that has a negative connotation, but a, a little bit of a poor man's version of Jasper. Um, I thought it was really, really cool. Um, have you been out to Toby? I've played Tobiano. Yeah. Tobiano is, Tobiano is a spectacular setting with some spectacular holes, but you got to remember, like, I think when you're judging a, a great golf course, and this goes back to our conversation with Jasper, what makes it so good is like, you got to make sure the golf course is playable for everyone. And there's some pretty radical stuff at Toby. Yeah. I mean, like there's some really, really difficult holes and Thomas McRoom does not mind designing a difficult golf course yeah. where you're asking quite a bit of the average player force carries, uh, what is it? The seventh hole, that par three, yeah. where it's like, I mean, from the back, it's like a three wood and you're landing it on a green, like the size of my Paper table. Here. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's crazy. So, I mean, like it's, I mean, it's a stunning piece of property for sure. It's and also an ego check golf course. It's 100%. Like you need the to really play the good right players. Team. 
the really good player is going to love it. But I mean, like that's a small percentage. But the average player needs to realize they need to move up. They need to move way up. Right. Um, So, no, I like Toby and I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's too hard to be like a truly, truly great golf course in this country. It's a fair point. Um, What else? What's something that you think really should have been on that list that was completely, or maybe has been left off numerous times? Um, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Yeah, we're we'll, gonna, we're we'll save some easy questions for you coming up here. All night long, you no, can just but, tell we're nerdy. The thing out, is, like, eh? hard. This is the nerdiest nerd fest imaginable right now. The, <laughs> the, the other thing about the list is when you start saying, like, you know, a lot of people say, like, I can't believe that course is on the top 100. I can't believe that course is on the top 100. And then you kind of flip it around sometimes. You say, okay, what belongs on the top 100? And suddenly they start going, well, I'm not really sure. I just know that course shouldn't be a top 100 but they don't really have one necessarily put it now. Obviously, if you talk to, you know, my cousin in Winnipeg and everybody in Manitoba, they'll say like, I'll tell you exactly what courses Oreos. should be on the list, right? Um, yeah. I never played golf in the Winnipeg area, so I can't comment, but I mean, obviously we don't have a lot of fans in Manitoba every time the list comes out. Um, it, I think it was great that the Algonquin got back on. They did a lot of awesome renovations there. They brought in Rod Whitten and Keith Cutton to do some work and some of the holes there are very Cabot-esque. So that was cool to see that course come back on. Um, I think you brought up a very good point as well when it came to Calgary Country Club. And it's you talk about the property. You look at a yeah. lot of those older facilities, especially city country clubs. Right. Find me one that's not a good property. You right. find a good property, you'll find a good golf course. And yeah. time and time again, those appear on the list. And yeah. it's not a coincidence. It's right. because they're perfectly situated for that golf course. Right. And that, and, and there's a, and there's a lot of golf courses like that in cities and there's a lot of golf courses and a great number of golf courses like that around Toronto too. And that, and people will say like, I, you know, people that haven't played golf in Toronto, they just kind of have, they think of Toronto. And even when I grew up outside of Toronto, when I only spent like the odd time coming into Toronto to go to a Blue Jays game or something like that, you just think, well, Toronto's just like skyscrapers and highways, but man, oh man, yeah, there's, there's I've a lived in, I've lived in Toronto for, 15 years now i mean the property and the neighborhoods around here are amazing and they're fantastic for golf you know like st george's you go into st george's and the way those winding fairways move up and down and uh, the bunkering and the greens it's just like again if you haven't been here you just don't have appreciation of how good the property is for golf absolutely i've learned i need to play more golf today for sure you've inspired <laughs> it yeah we need to retirement go. need to yeah. get in my car i'm gonna drive east tonight and just set sail for the east coast golf courses yeah that's definitely what's got to happen here it's coming all right jason one more segment before we let you off the hook here we're gonna do a little rapid fire 10 with you to close this okay. thing out okay all right let me know when you're ready yeah, go ahead. You have a calculator with you by chance. Oh God, I'm not. No, I I'm became a writer. For, I became a writer for a reason, right? <laughs> What's in the bag right now? What are you playing? I have a Titleist T100 irons. Um, I have a Titleist TS3 driver. Um, I I have a Vokey wedges, and I have a TaylorMade TP putter, and a, a Tour Edge CB4 Tour three wood. 
That's like 13 years old. That's trust. I like that. Well, trust. Favorite favorite club in my bag. I mean, you guys know if you get a three wood that you can rely on, never oh, get rid of it. I have a five like, wood in my bag like that. I have a steelhead exactly. three steel shaft. Never exactly. find it again. Yeah, <laughs> I'm crazy. I'm on the tour edge staff with like uh, <laughs> Duffy like Waldorf and uh, Tom Lehman and those guys. Man, I love that. Scotty McCarron. Yeah, he wins with it. That's why he loves it. Yeah. What kind of ball are you playing? Whatever, man. Honestly, like. I, <laughs> You know, I mean, if I had my choice, I'd probably play a Pro V1X. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll kind of play whatever. I've, I've played the I've played the Costco ball many times. Yeah, I actually. like the Kirkland. I think it's great. Yeah. Thirty-one bucks. Thirty-one bucks for twenty-four balls. How do you go we're wrong? Gonna, you know, it's interesting. We're going to have vice golf and we're going to have clear golf. You know that terrible yeah. hat Charles yeah. Schwartz was wearing right now. You're going to have those guys on. It'd be interesting to see what they what they come up with with their introduction into the ball market. Yeah. What's what's your range warm up like? Are you a guy that just pulls dog, bangs it a couple times and heads to the first tee or you like to work through the bag? Yeah, I mean usually like I'm going to go out there and, and and grab a wedge and just try and hit like little half wedge shots and just trying to get the feel of the ball. Um usually don't like to uh warm up for too long. If I can hit like 15 or 20 balls, like let's go, let's go Safety to the first dance. Tee. Get out yeah. of here. Yeah, I love it. So we're coming through the turn. What are we fueling up with? What's your go-to snack? Uh, I mean, if it's a if it's a good one where I know the golf course, like it's got to be a hot dog for nice. sure. Mm-hmm. For I sure. Like it. What kind of yeah, toppings? We, yeah, what are we putting on that thing? There's this. You gotta. There's. I hate to be like all country club and private club, but there's this. You should see this hot dog at Mississauga. It's called like the trailer trash dog, and it's <laughs> oh, got like. I haven't had it for a while. It's got like crushed potato chips on it and stuff. Oh, what? Nice. Unbelievable. Unlike this, unlike this brioche bread. It's unbelievable. Oh, that sounds dreamy. We got to yeah. tell uh, Abe Answers Caddy, our man Dale Valelli. He'll, yeah. he'll be out there doing a hot dog review. Yeah, that's one of the best. That's one of the best in the country. Any superstitions on the golf course? Do you like to tee off from one side of the tee markers? Do you do anything crazy on the greens? Are you, are you weird like um, that? Three waggles? I like, I like to keep I like to keep multiple tees in my pocket. I don't want to just have one tee. And just a superstition with like in life in general, it extends to hockey, golf, whatever. I always put my left shoe on first. Mm, interesting. Okay. I have no idea why. I, I do the same actually. I have no idea which I've never saw. You guys are soulmates. <laughs> so hole in one, Jason Logan. Zero. Any, what? Zero. Yeah. Zero. Any threes? Any holes in three? Uh, no, no. Um, the closest I ever, I mean, I've come close where like you have like leaners and stuff, but I remember when I was really young, I was probably like six or seven. I literally like hit a shot off it, like with that trusty three iron that went like two feet, like basically behind me. And it was like still in the blocks and I knocked the next one in for a birdie. So it's like, it was like from the teen blocks, but it was my second shot. Nice. I, got a similar, I got a similar story. So I share your pain, my friends. Favorite golf course. Don't Jasper. think too long about it. Jasper. Jasper. It's got to be Jasper. I like we that. already know this. Yeah. <laughs> Dream foursome. Four guys, dead or alive. Or women. Or children. Yeah, it's, I mean, like, you don't want the corny answer, which is like, oh, I want to play with my family and stuff. So I'll just give you, like, a real honest answer. Like, it's definitely Tiger and Fred Couples. Oh, Freddie. Nice. Two. Don't get a Freddie. Freddie. Fre- Freddie was always my favorite golfer growing up. I just love Fred Couples. I think everybody loves Fred Couples. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that. He's and I don't guy. see I don't see how you couldn't play with Tiger. You'd have to. Um, and they'd have right? good energy between them. I wouldn't too. want to ride with him, but I'd want to play no. with him. 
I'd want to ride yeah. with Freddie. One hundred percent. And uh, like, even though I was never a big Phil Mickelson guy, I think if you're playing with Tiger and Freddie, then you want Phil Mickelson there too. Just you want just friction the, points. You just want to hear the trash talk. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. You just want to hear the smack talk all all the way around. That would be incredible. Favorite golf experience? Anything? Something that reminds you of being on the golf course or somewhere you've been where you're like, wow, this is golf. Yeah. Um, like a couple come to mind. Like I got to go to Whistling Straits on a golf trip and they let me bring somebody. So I flew my dad down. Awesome. Um, and so we played uh, Whistling Straits and uh, it was just him and I in a twosome with a caddy who was double bagging it. And it was just one of those like perfect mornings, right? It was like, 16, 17 degrees playing alongside Lake Michigan. We get to the 17th hole. The 17th hole at Whistling Straits is this like murderous par three right on the water. And the, I think the T deck we were playing, it was like 190 yards, but the caddy is like, this is like 240 oh, because of the wind. <laughs> like this is, this is, this is like a three club win for sure. And that hole always backs up because it's such a hard hole. So there was like three groups behind us as we teed off. And we both striped three woods right onto the middle of the green. Oh. And my dad, my, my dad is at this point, my dad is 60 years old and like, he's super nervous about going and playing this course. And he just, we both hit these amazing shots and everybody behind us was just like oh, going nuts, like clapping and everything. Like, who are these guys? I hope, yeah. stepped, I hope yeah. he stepped on your ball when you got up there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty cool. That Final question cool. of the evening. We typically like to ask our guests to share a story surrounding golf that they've never told before. Do you have one for us? <sighs> okay. I've kind of, I've told this like through Twitter, but I've never told it on a podcast. So does oh, that count? I like Absolutely. that. For it. It's a little, uh, I'm going to try and make it the shortest possible, but I went on a trip to play golf in Malaysia mm -hmm. years ago, 2007. And I, mean, I could tell this, I could, we could go on for an hour here, but on the last day, um, the woman who's running the trip comes up to me and says, these two guys are from Indonesia. They were supposed to be golf writers, but I found out they're actually professional gamblers. She says, they've asked for a match against the white man. Oh. <laughs> so they, so they wanted, so they wanted to play myself and this other guy from Chicago because we we're posting scores and we were all kind of shooting around the same score. We were like, four of the better players there so like we want to they want to watch match against the white men and so the the buddy from chicago that i met there i had told him like it's the last round you've got to play with this guy from taiwan whose name was tommy lyon wow because to because tommy lyon was like 87 pounds five foot one counted every single shot drank half a heineken on the golf course and just got wrecked and i'm like you gotta play with this guy i played with him yesterday he's like the most fun guy in the world you have to play with him right like so he begged out of the match with the indonesians and this other guy this brit came in and he didn't want any part of a money match so we didn't end up playing a match for money but we're playing this golf course in the middle of the malaysian jungle it's just the most wild golf course i've ever seen like it's so bad that it's good yeah you know what i mean because oh, yeah. it's just it's just crazy just an experience like, it's just such an experience. Like there's monkeys and everything. And there's just like these holes. You're like, where am I supposed to hit it? Right. Yeah. 
and we get to the 11th hole it's a par three and I'm, I'm in the blocks. I'm right about to take my club back. And one of the Indonesian guys, they call me Mr. Jason. That's just the way they oh, yeah. address, dress the white man as a sign of respect. I just hear a voice go, Mr. Jason. And I stop and I look and I, he goes, Mr. Jason. And I look at him and he goes, Komodo. And I look over and a Komodo dragon has come up out of its burrow on the tea deck and is just staring at us. And my heart is just racing and they're laughing. And this, this gigantic lizard just slowly meanders into the jungle and doesn't do anything. And like, I could barely take the club back. I was so scared. And these guys were just laughing because they've seen it. They see it all the time. They see right? it every day. It's their pet. Yeah. And it was. Are those things wild? Like, can they get at you? Or yeah, what's like the... they, I thought they, they were they, only I think, on one place. I think I they, they eat only people. On Island. <laughs> so, so the funny, yeah, that's the funny part of that story. Here. So we go back and we're telling everybody this and they're like, no, no, Komodo dragons are not native to this. Yeah. To here. And the Indonesians are guy like guys are like, so apparently Komodo dragons are supposed to only be able to found on Indonesia. Yeah. I kind of read up, did some research and there are certain species that can be in Malaysia. And these two guys were like, no, no, it was definitely a Komodo dragon. Wow. And I'm like Googling it on my computer. I'm like, yeah, that was a Komodo dragon. Crazy. And it was just like it was so scary but you know what the coolest part of it like that story was i played golf with those two guys from indonesia who barely spoke a word of english and we just had the most amazing day because it was just like we all spoke the language of golf which i know sounds really corny but like they were so cool and so nice and so like complimentary of good shots you know like i was going into this thinking like oh these guys just want to beat me they want to match against the white man yeah, and it couldn't have been wallets. it wasn't yeah. it wasn't like that at all they were just like if i hit a big drive they're like oh so good so good like they were just so enthusiastic to just be out there and see good golf shots and it was just it was a really 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 cool experience the only thing you special. need to know is do a bintang <laughs> do you want to know the craziest part about like the world we live in today when I, I i went to peru a little while ago and like we hired a cab driver for the entire day to drive us to some different sites and with google translator i literally learned everything about this guy's life like just say, speak yeah. in english into it and then it spit out spanish and then he talked spanish back in and give me the english it was like it was the craziest thing imaginable. Yeah, that's wild. Like that's uh, wild, mind blowing. So now, if you go back, remember Google Translator. You can have well, a discussion with it anyone. It was it was funny. Like that that guy, they didn't speak a, a lick of English. And then that night, they had like this big celebration gala because it was the end of the trip. And this one guy, one of the Indonesians, goes up, and he was a really good looking dude, young guy, good looking dude. And he goes up, and they had karaoke, and he grabs a microphone, and he just starts belting out like perfect like Engelbert Humperdinck songs, <laughs> like every word of English spoken perfectly, no accent or nothing. Between and Filipinos and Indonesians, you will never hear better cover songs. Honestly, you, he was you unbelievable. Can, you can't go turns, to a hotel bar anywhere in Southeast Asia oh, and yeah. find a Filipino band. No, yeah, we, we did karaoke when we were in Malaysia, but that guy, as it turns out, was a contestant on Indonesian Idol. Oh, wow. nice. which I, which I found it. So he's up there belting out these Engelbert Humperdinck tunes. I'm like, this guy didn't speak a word of English on the golf course. Where and now he's right doing right everything. Now. And they're yeah. like, yeah, he was a contestant on Indonesian idol. And I'm like, Oh, it makes sense. <laughs> guy's so got funny. some vocal chords for sure. There you go. He's oh, got yeah. the chops. He was awesome. It. Maybe a score golf Asian tour is going to have to come around here one of <laughs> yeah. these days. And we're going to have to get you back in the saddle and take you over there. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was it. wild. Golf karaoke. That's Love perfect. It. Well, Mr. Jason, we say to you, Mikasa, <laughs> we appreciate your time coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, we'd love to hopefully link up sooner rather than later and try and play some golf. Maybe the beginning of next season. Maybe we can jump on yeah. that panel with you guys. You maybe uh, maybe when this world changes for the better and we can actually travel around this country again, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully we have yeah. the four jack RV and you can just come yeah. on in. We'll go play some, some courses and then yeah, have a good time when things kind of settle down. But it was a pleasure meeting you. Sounds yeah, good. I'm in. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, thanks guys. Thanks, thanks for everything you do for golf, man. Keep fighting the good fight. The publication's great and it's been a it's been a resonated piece of literature from my childhood. So love that and yeah. It's been awesome. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Definitely. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will chat with you guys next week. Thanks.